This episode is brought to you by Expired Easter Candy. Much like forgotten tampons, they can be found hiding in the deep nether regions of the discount shelves at Walmart at any time of day this time of year. Maybe if they're too far gone, you can make arts and crafts out of them instead of trying to digest them. Otherwise, they might taste a little dusty, and a rare few might bear the marks of having already been sampled by a small child. But if your standards for snacks are as low as mine, you might find something to enjoy. After all, what is an expiration date but a form of censorship on our taste buds? and a roadblock on the path to pure satisfaction. It is time for another episode of The Root of All Ope, and this is Tatum Schrader, your host. Today, I'm going to read a poem by a friend of mine, Carrie Maya. Carrie Maya is a shamanic practitioner, witchcraft author, and energetic healer. She also runs a podcast called A Spiritual Adventure, which focuses on spiritual reconstruction. You can also currently read all of Carrie's 2013 poetry titled Charcoal Plus Red Lipstick on her blog. I've included links to all of these in the podcast description if you'd like to check them out. With her permission, I will be reading her work, The Teacup Poem. I chose this poem partially because I have found lots of great growth and education in Carrie Maya's work online, and I wanted a chance to share that with my listeners, but also because this poem specifically stood out to me. I love its use of repetition to circle back to previous ideas, and of course the poignancy of connecting something as simple as drinking tea to much more complex reflections. The Teacup Poem by Carrie Maya I like to mix and match teacups. Fine bone, floral pattern, polka dotted decanters, fashioned from melted down mood rains, herbal teardrops hot from the kettle, metal broken hearted vessel. I pour minutes and hours into palm sized fragility, warming my hands to avoid the chaos of a life that looks like a Tolstoy manuscript in the middle of a handwritten edit. This chamomile is rain playing piano on a tin roof. I am with my ancestors here. I am a collage of their choices here, for good and for bad here. I am here. Liquid thrift shop outings travel down my esophagus, and I become delicate shades of vintage pale green and faded antique rose. Eloquent and elegant 18th century perfumers run across my scalp from ear to ear. Music has a smell here. Herbal teardrops hot from the kettle, metal broken hearted vessel. I pour minutes and hours into palm sized fragility. I forgot to call the student advisor at uni. Instead, I just neglected to hand in assignments and failed two units. I'm not interested in worry about the future or about weight loss or getting my degree. I just lie in bed lie on my back, lie on my side. These are the positions I do my thinking in. Again and again, I recall forced participation in liturgies of spiritual violence, 
eating pentagrams with holy communion wine. Lie on my back. Lie on my side. These are the positions I resent, not being able to talk properly to anyone but my therapist in. Always looking out. Always on the inside looking out. Herbal teardrops hot from the kettle. Metal broken hearted vessel. I pour minutes and hours into palm-sized fragility. I watch a Diane Sawyer interview with Susan Atkins from 2002, still in prison for the murders she committed under Charles Manson's influence. Reflecting on the way she laughed in court after killing people and apologizing again for those things she did in 1969. This, however, is not the focus of the interview, but a premise for her unveiling of a lawn shot request. She begs to be released from prison so she can spend her last days with her family before brain cancer will completely take her. When discussing her sanity, then and now, Diane asks her to respond to this general statement. In order to be able to do monstrous things, you have to be a monster. To which Susan replies, that's simply not true. And I am suddenly ashamed because I find myself feeling that this convicted murderer is a long-lost sister. I want to tell her. You made these choices, yes, but I know what it's like to live in a state of vulnerable delusion until you become everything you hate, until you become a vessel for someone else's wickedness. I am desolate over the fact that you couldn't unshackle yourself from his mental snares. We all have our monsters. Mine, the one that grew from my stomach and out of my esophagus. I was eventually able to vomit her out. The only thing that separates you and I is that one of us didn't believe in our gag reflex. Susan, with not just all of my heart, but all my vital organs. I want to change the past for you. I'll never say she didn't deserve to be in prison, but what happened to her and what she did as a result of it unnerves me. I guess I just don't know who determines the mercy threshold or how we forget that we have to write victim before we can spell out victimizer. I'll just wonder about it and wait to forget what I've known about violin-playing serial killers, to forget what I've learned about knife-wielding orchestra conductors, to forget what they told me about waste, and love used things with virginal love. 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 I am a used thing. And I need virginal love. That's why I like to mix and match teacups. Fine bone, floral pattern, polka dotted decanters fashioned from melted down mood rains. Herbal teardrop hot from the kettle. Metal broken hearted vessel. I pour minutes and hours into palm sized fragility. Today, we're delving into part two of my look into the HBO miniseries, Sharp Objects. For a quick recap, the series is based on the 2006 novel of the same name, written by Gillian Flynn, 
who you may recognize from her controversial 2012 novel, Gone Girl. Jillian Flynn was an executive producer on the HBO adaptation of her debut novel. And the plot follows a mentally ill alcoholic journalist who returns to her old hometown to write a story on two missing slash murdered girls. If you have not listened to part one, well, I mean, why are you starting with part two? The link to part one is in the description, so go check it out and you can check back in with part two when you're done. If you've already listened to part one, you'll recall that last time we broke down the basic elements of the show and recapped the first two episodes. Today, we're going to be taking a peek into episodes three, four, and five of the show. Now, for this episode, you're going to notice a change from part one. I'm going to actually go back to certain passages of the novel of the same name to add to my discussion. For part one, I was hoping to focus solely on the HBO adaptation, not so much do like a side-by-side review of the book and series. But as I was preparing this episode, I realized that by avoiding the book for what we're about to see happen on the screen, I would be depriving my listeners of some important context and little tidbits that help us understand certain scenes a little bit more. So, I'm going to do what I thought I would not be doing for this series. And again, it's just to help add a bit more context, not review the book Sharp Objects itself. Couple quick warnings first though. This episode and the episodes I'm reviewing continue on with the themes of alcoholism, abuse, and self-harm we saw before. We're also going to address the theme of animal abuse, specifically in the meat industry. It's not depicted explicitly in the show itself, but from the passages I'm taking from the book, they are going to be quite graphic. So if that stuff is hard for you to hear, I would advise caution. And you probably should not eat a BLT or ham sandwich while listening to this episode either. Actually, maybe best to avoid all meat. You'll see what I mean in a few minutes. Also, this episode is heavy on the topics of sexual abuse and rape, as well as self-harm, suicide ideation, and both attempted and completed suicide. So, please be careful if any of those topics are going to be hard to see or hear. Now, episode three, Fix, launches with a bunch of high schoolers doing what all us kids who grew up rural and lower class do, chase a pig around in a field while drinking beer. Emma comes home from the same party completely wasted, and her older half-sister helps her inside, gets her some water and so on, as an older sibling does. In the ensuing conversation, Camille makes a couple mentions that Emma is like she was when she was Emma's age. Emma, in reply, makes a haunting statement. Camille loves dead girls. Now, why did she say such a weird thing, albeit drawn out by being very drunk? Now, of course, the first couple references to this statement are pretty obvious. The only reason Camille is back in Wind Gap is because one girl was killed and another went missing, who also turned up killed. But the statement rings true for another reason. Camille's sister, who died when she was a child, who, I can't believe I forgot to mention this in the previous episode, but her name is Marion. So Marion died when Camille was just a kid, and she never really recovered from the loss. And of course, she still loves her sister. 
And now she is writing news articles about two girls from her hometown who were murdered. She loves dead girls. The fact that Emma makes this observation and says so while drunk can't really be ignored. Oh, and while we're talking about Emma, let's talk about the scene in this episode when Camille sees her roller skating around town and follows her out to the pig farm owned by Adora. As Camille watches, Emma goes into the pig farm to look at the animals and even gets to hold a piglet. Simple and innocent enough, right? Like something right out of Charlotte's Web? Nah, Ron. Very Ron. Of course, upon first glance, this whole sequence of the trip to a pig farm may seem a bit unnecessary to the plot, even out of place. Again, it's a like more naturalistic, dare I say, realistic version of something out of Charlotte's Web. But in Sharp Objects, as we've seen, every scene happens for a reason. Furthermore, every single shot, every word, even every musical note is there for a reason. Which means that if a sequence or piece of dialogue feels out of place, we have to break it down piece by piece to figure out what the writers are trying to tell us. So let's pause here to do just that for the whole pig farm scene. It is very brief, but I think upon close inspection, it is one of the finest scenes I've tackled so far. Also, I literally went to school for this kind of stuff, so I gotta use that degree for something, right? Well, let's get into it. For starters, I'm just going to clarify this because I don't think I really did in the last episode. Adora, Camille and Emma's mother, owns an industrial hog farm. According to the book Sharp Objects, this farm accounts for almost 2% of pork in the United States. For perspective's sake, about 130 million pigs have been slaughtered in the U.S. every year for the past couple years. Even going back to the year the book was published, the numbers only dropped to around 100 million. So, this is a big farm. Also, according to the book, the hog farm provides Adora with a little over a million dollars in profits every year, and she lets other people run the place. Basically, she gets all the cash and doesn't have to do any work. Which, good grief you guys, eat the rich, but damned if that does not sound like the high life. But, because the hog farm is so big, that means it's also the main source of employment in Wind Gap. As Camille puts it in the novel, quote, Find a poor person in Wind Gap, and they'll almost always tell you they work at the farm, and so did their old man, unquote. Anyway, this whole sequence is one instance where I would say the book explains it better than the series. I know, in the last episode, I went on a huge rant about how this is such a good book-to-screen adaptation, and I do stand by that. But there are reflections Camille has in the book we don't hear watching the episode. Basically, the book scene gives us a little more detail. And to be fair, I think that is partly because the writers for the series didn't want this to get too ghastly on screen. You'll see what I mean. Also, for clarification's sake, the book is written in the first-person point of view from Camille's perspective. And Camille is, quite frankly, disgusted by the sights and smells of the hog farm. Because, mind you, we are far away from whatever idea you have of what a lovely little Midwestern farm looks like. As Camille watches, her sister kneels down to watch the piglet's nurse. Without the gruesome details from the book, this might seem a bit innocent. 
However, the book scene for this goes into the horror of what the pigs at this farm endure. Camille describes how exhausted the mother pig is and how parts of her body have become bloody and how the piglets are fighting for their meal. In Camille's words, quote, Most sows are repeatedly insumated, brood after brood, till their bodies give way and they go to slaughter. But while they're still useful, they're made to nurse, strapped to their sides in a fairing crate, legs apart, nipples exposed. Pigs are extremely smart, sociable creatures, and this forced assembly line like intimacy makes the nursing sows want to die, which, as soon as they dry up, they do." Unquote. In a later episode, John Keane, who worked for the farm until four, Adora fired him, says, quote, "...pigs are smart. They know what's happening to them, or what's about to happen." Unquote. So, why am I so interested in this scene, and why do I think it's so important? I think that the hog farm is a powerful symbol of the class structure of Wind Gap. More so, it's a symbol of Wind Gap itself. And I think there can also be something to be said about how this points to more poignant issues in the class structure of the entire United States, as well as the horrific animal abuse rampant in our industrial farms. For starters, the fact that Adora is a multimillionaire literally just making money from the fact that she owns the farm and doesn't have to make any tough business decisions or attend any meetings. For that matter, she isn't the one having to butcher the pigs or shovel their feces. She gets the most profit from zero work. Now, contrast that with the poor folks of Wind Gap who work at the farm which has to be minimum wage because they are still deep in poverty. We see them living in shabby homes and filling up the bars after their shifts. As Camille describes it in the book, quote, The killing side's worse. Some employees load the pigs, forcing them down the gangway where stunners await. Others grab the back legs, fasten the catch around them, release the animal to be lifted, squealing and kicking upside down. They cut the throats with pointy slaughter knives. The constant screams, frantic metallic squeals, drive most of the workers to wear earplugs and they spend their days in a soundless rage. At night, they drink and play music, loud. The local bar serves nothing pork-related, only chicken tenders, which are, presumably, processed by equally furious factory workers in some other crappy town." Unquote. And not only does Camille's mother contribute to this vicious cycle, she stands to gain from it. She is part of an ever-grinding wheel, in which the farther down the hierarchy you go, the more you suffer and the less you benefit, until you don't benefit at all. Which is not too unlike Adore's relationships with her own daughters and the community of Wingap. Remember, her main concern with Camille's return to town is that her drinking habit will give the family a bad reputation, not, you know, actually welcoming her daughter back home. She only mingles with people in town when it will make her look good or when they have something she wants. And Adora only offers her doting love and care if her daughters submit to her in the way she wants them to. It's a terrifying example of how the cycle of abuse of authority happens not just in the economy, but in our own communities and in our own households. Systematic suffering, taking multiple shapes and forms. 
I think there is also something to be said about the profit made off of suffering, of cruelty, and death. And if they don't profit from it, they definitely turn a blind eye to it. That idea actually ties in later to the next two Sharp Objects episodes, so I'm going to circle back to that, but keep it in mind for now. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this next subject, but I would hope that the descriptions in this book help wake up at least some people to the very gruesome reality of industrial farms. Now, of course, I know that there are smaller locally owned family farms that are more humane, but there are far more industrial farms in the country, as in around 99%, according to the United States Department of Agriculture. And these industrial farms are rampant with horrific animal abuse, some of which Camille graciously described to us in the novel, and in the HBO series, as we can tell, it's quite watered down. As if the reality of how bad it is in these places would have been too much for the viewers, but, you know, a 10-year-old girl's corpse with the teeth removed is totally fine. And this isn't even tapping into animal abuse in the fashion industry, the cosmetic industry, or the film industry for that matter. But that would deter from the main focus of this episode. I'm not an expert on the subject of animal cruelty in industrial farms, but I will say it only takes about 20 seconds of Googling to find some pretty appalling statistics backed by multiple sources. There is a great article from Tenderly, written by Matthew John Phillips, that goes into this topic a bit deeper as it relates directly to sharp objects, if you are interested. I have included a link to it in the podcast description so you can check it out. But the point I'm making is this. Windgap's economy relies on the suffering of these creatures. Adore herself is able to live out her sort of lifestyle because of the suffering of both the pigs at the farm and the workers under her employment. And it sucks, doesn't it? Because how many of these workers do not like how the pigs are treated and how many have to keep working here because it's the only job they can find in town? How many in our day and age have no choice but to work for corrupt CEOs or buy products made from abuse or slave labor because we have little to no say in it? To wrap this all up, I don't think the writers of the show are necessarily telling us to go vegan. After all, they did tame down the graphic details of the farm from the book. But I do think the presence of the pig farm is a great symbol for the functions of Wind Gap and Camille's family. Speaking of Camille's family, we haven't even addressed the burning question, why would Emma even want to come to a place like this? Who would come here to see these horrible things if they didn't have to for, you know, work? Well, in the book, we get a couple morbid details. As Camille watches, quote, Emma sat down, cross-legged, and gazed, fascinated. After five minutes, she was in the same position, now smiling and squirming, unquote. Now, as to what exactly the smiling and squirming refers to is just vague enough, but I think it's enough to hint that Amma is, well, really enjoying the sight of the piglets nursing from the mama pig. This is a girl who is going out of her way to watch a living being that's more or less below her endure abuse and suffering, and she delights in it. So it seems that Amma has inherited some of Adora's more sadistic tendencies. All in all, it's a pretty chilling moment, especially for Camille. 
Also, perhaps there's something to be said about the image of the little piglets hurting each other and themselves in the pen just to get a chance to drink some milk from their mother. The image of, let's say, a child who hurts themselves and may even hurt their siblings to receive nurturing from their mother, and the fact that Emma is drawn to this. So, now that we've spent a good amount of time unpacking that scene, let's keep going forward with the plot and see what we find next. There is a part, another part I want to delve into, but another warning, this is going to be heavy stuff about self-harm and suicide attempt slash completion. The viewers, in summary, get a very crucial flashback to another chapter in Camille's life. We get snippets of this flashback on and off throughout the episode as Camille is slowly reliving the memories, but I'll summarize the entire flashback in one go. We cut back a few years when Camille checks into a psychiatric hospital after badly cutting her wrists. We don't see her cut, but we do see the blood on her shirt sleeves. And then we suddenly meet the girl we have seen in a few blink and he miss it moments from the previous two episodes. Turns out her name is Alice and she is Camille's new roomie. The girls end up bonding during their stay at the hospital. They talk about how they both cut themselves and show each other scars. They even connect a bit over how they have limited wardrobe options because of the scarring. Interestingly enough, in this flashback, Camille states music isn't her thing upon Alice bringing it up, which is very odd because Camille has been listening to music in the car, in the bathtub, in the bar. Music dominates her life in the present, but in the past, it isn't there at all until she meets Alice. So it is this girl in the psych ward who we realize has gotten Camille into music. In fact, the song Alice is listening to when we first meet her is the same song Camille played when she got drunk and slept it off in her car in episode one. In one scene, Camille manages to convince the front desk to let them borrow their phone and earbuds so the two girls could listen to music together. It's an intimate, rather beautiful scene. These two broken young women trying to piece themselves back together and try to survive after all they've been through. And then we see why we're getting this flashback. Because this is not a happy memory. It's not a memory Camille is recalling because she got the treatment at the hospital she needs for her mental health, self-harm, and alcoholism. And it's not a memory of making a new friend at this hospital who helped her either. Camille checks back into the room with the nurse one day, only for both of them to see a horrific sight on the floor. Her friend Alice is dead, Little glimpses indicate suicide by drinking bleach. Blood and vomit are all over the floor. Camille finally had someone she connected with, someone who almost certainly reminded her of her dead sister, Marion, and she is suddenly gone. And in a very horrible way, too. In a panic, Camille attempts suicide by removing one of the screws from the toilet. We see this clearly as she slits her wrists, blood splattering the bathroom tile. Cutting back constantly to Camille spaying out of Wingap in present day, after dark, as she remembers this moment. It's a moment now mingling with those of her dead sister, and finding the body of Natalie Keen. Dead little girls have been piling up in Camille's mind. She loves dead girls. In the darkness, Camille sees a figure standing in the road, a girl with dirty blonde hair and a white gown, and screeches to a halt, only for the figure to disappear. Was the figure Alice? 
Was it her sister, Marion, who died years ago? Is it Anne or Natalie, one of the murdered girls? Or is she possibly the paranormal spirit said to be haunting Wingap? Is it the woman in white? Meanwhile, Richard, the detective from Kansas City, is still trying to get an idea of what sort of profile the killer fits and who he is looking for. His conclusion is that whoever did this knew both Anne and Natalie. The killer had a personal motive and, in his words, had a particular problem with these particular girls. The police chief, however, doesn't buy it. Suffice it to say, this conflict of interest between the two of them is not helping them make much ground on finding the killer. As for the other members of the main cast, Adora is such a treat in this episode and checks off all the boxes for emotional abuse bingo in how she talks to Camille. I don't know if it's the she makes me feel like a bad mom or nothing is ever your fault, is it? But I think cutting her hand on a rose thorn and immediately telling Camille, look what you did, takes the cake for me. She's a great mom. Seeing that the police chief is not going to help him much, Richard goes back to Camille to try to get more information about Wingap. They have a few drinks, as one does, and end up hanging out outside the bar and have some honestly quite adorable flirting, which, as Camille Luck would have it, is really interrupted by Emma and her friends breaking curfew. Here, thanks to Emma's teasing and Camille opening up a bit to Richard, we get more hints at Camille's past and the reputation she once had in Wind Gap. In summary, we get a picture of her being openly sexual in high school with the boys. But was this a period of Camille's life in which she was happily doing so? Or was it somewhat or even entirely non-consensual? How much of her reputation is based more on those boys' perception of her rather than the reality of what happened? We get more answers as to that in the next episode. But once again, another layer has been peeled back in Camille. And with each episode, we progress deeper into understanding her trauma and what has led her to self-harm and drink. Before going to episode 4, let's touch on some hidden words real quick. Not all of them, but just the ones I found especially interesting. At the hospital in Camille's flashbacks, we see a poster on the wall that says upon first glance, you are not invisible, but in the next shot changes to you are unworthy. A hint, of course, at Camille's inner thoughts about herself, possibly unworthy to check into the facility for recovery. Even with blood on her arms, she doesn't feel her problems merit enough justification to check into a hospital. On a tractor at the hog farm, the logo for Caterpillar suddenly changes to Catfight, which could be a reference to how Emma and her friends constantly bicker, as well as Camille and her mother. Sort of on a similar note, a sign that normally says billiards in the bar changes to belittle. Finally, in the scene where Camille drives down the road and sees a strange figure, a road sign briefly says spiteful instead of St. Louis. Again, all these words are indications of the inner monologue Camille is currently going through. Reflections on both herself and the people she knows. In episode 4, titled Ripe, we're going to have another big revelation about Camille's past, as well as a major plot twist that is going to change everything we know about the murder girls. But before we get into that, we open with kind of an interesting scene. 
Camille, Richard, Adora, and the police chief all waking up and starting their day. Camille pulled over to the side of the road in the country the previous night and appears to have slept in a field. Richard is in a crappy motel room that you'd sooner wake up in with one of your kidneys missing, while the police chief and Adora awake in the comfort of their own homes, the latter of which is, of course, much more expensive. Four lives intertwining, all because of two murdered girls. And with each one, the, I guess, standard of the setting they wake up to improves in quality. Once again, Richard and Camille meet up, but this time it's not to drink and pretend to help each other out. This time, they've made a deal. For every crime scene Camille shows him, she gets an on-the-record quote from him. I know, very romantic setup. I do like these two, though. They could make a sweet couple. He's not from Wind Gap and seems to be good for her, and he has a level head. Plus, they get each other's bitter sarcasm. But, I digress. These crime scenes, of course, are not exactly related to the murders of Anne and Natalie, but they are going to offer Richard some more insight into Wingap's history, and hopefully help him complete his profile of the killer. The first crime scene is where two girls were found with their wrists slashed many years ago. Was it murder or suicide? Great question, with no definitive answer. As Camille explains to the man from KC, the two girls were actually in love with each other. And because we have already seen how loving, supportive, and progressive wind gap is to the gays, we can pretty easily fill in the blanks of what these girls' lives were like. But the second crime scene has a connection directly to Camille. This place is a little clearing in the woods called the End Zone, where every week the high school football team would take one of the cheerleaders and gang rape her. And here is where the topic of consent and lack thereof comes in. What follows is a very tough conversation to hear as Richard and Camille discuss what exactly happened in the end zone. From Richard's perspective, it was rape. And he is especially assertive it was rape after he figures out that Camille was one of the cheerleaders. And Camille, however, argues that a bunch of boys having their way with a girl doesn't mean it was non-consensual. Now, Camille's not stupid. I think she very well knows what happened to her, and she knows that this experience from her high school years was a horrific experience. So when I hear her defending the football team, I hear her struggling to accept her trauma. She's not quite ready to say out loud, yes, I was a victim of this. So instead of letting herself accept that she did not consent to this event, Camille has allowed that trauma to fester inside her. In short, she's living in denial. Or, at the least, she's not ready to talk about it with someone, even a nice fellow like Richard, which, you know, is understandable. Perhaps she's also too afraid to talk about how bad it was. Or maybe she sees admission of being a rape victim as something to be ashamed of. The latter does make sense considering the toxic culture of wind gap she was raised in. A culture where women are discouraged from speaking up about their trauma, especially at the hands of men. In this same scene, we see another place similar to the end zone. In the woods, we come upon a very, very creepy hunting shed. Inside, there are graphic pornographic images taped to the walls. Images of a much younger Camille stumbling upon this shed are also intermingled, meaning she was exposed to this stuff as a child. And of course, we have no way of knowing the foes were taken out of consent or not, but, based on what we know about the end zone, I'm skeptical. 
which makes the dozens of photographs, even while only seen very briefly, incredibly disturbing. Remember earlier when I mentioned I'd come back to what the pig farm represents? The profit made off of suffering and cruelty and turning a blind eye to it? I think we see that in this works here too. The disgust is not of animal cruelty, of the stink of feces and raw meat, but of the things Camille and these other girls went through. But the boys who hurt them used their suffering to gain something from themselves. And just like the abuse going on at the pig farm, it's hidden out of town, out of sight, and out of mind, for only those with sadistic pleasures to come in and see. Of course, Camille's reaction to seeing the pornographic photos is the exact opposite of Emma at the pig farm. And the analogy is not perfect, I acknowledge that. But we are seeing this recurring theme of power, of abuse, of suffering. It also has a link to the murders going on, as referenced when Richard states that the teeth pulling is equivalent to rape, being that is an expression of power. And more than that, these themes are all connected to the culture of Wind Gap, and intertwined with Camille and her family. A couple other things worth mentioning that happen in this episode. We have one particularly unsettling scene with Emma. I know, shocker. This kid has some serious issues, but... I mean, considering her mom, it is understandable. But anyway, we see her step outside to talk to one of her high school teachers. Seems fine enough until she attempts to flirt with him. Fortunately, the teacher rejects her and walks away, but the moment still stands out to me as pretty startling. Emma is, well, she is a wild child. In the previous episode, she flirted a bit with Richard too. When he mentioned handcuffing her if she did wrong, she commented that that would be sexy. So, this isn't the first time Emma has been acting out. But the fact that it's a repeat behavior tells us something. It almost acts as a warning that Emma may be heading down a dark path. Perhaps she is doing so to try to get love and validation. The funny thing with Emma, though, is that as soon as a door is around, she changes her tune and suddenly becomes exactly the dainty little creature Adora wants her to be. Just like the piglets at the hog farm, she will do whatever she needs for mother's nutrition, which in this case is the emotional aspect. She knows how to work with Adora's games, to simultaneously be the wild rebellious kid and the submissive docile little doll. I'm sure Emma is smart enough to know that Adora's love is conditional, that she has to put on an act in order to receive attention from her. So it makes sense that she has begun acting out, because even though Adora dotes on her, it comes at a price. And so, the vicious cycle of abuse has repeated itself. While Camille was neglected by her mother, Emma is given affection while on a tight leash, loved only when she behaves how Adora wants her to. The really twisted tragedy this whole thing is that Camille never figured out how to play the game Emma is playing. And that is why her relationship is the way it is with her mother. We learn more about this part of Camille and Adora's relationship in this episode as well, from Adora's perspective, that is. Late one night, Camille comes home to Adora drinking again, which is kind of funny because Adora is almost always drinking booze on screen. The only difference is that she has fancy cocktails rather than shots like her daughter and she drinks in her home where no outsiders can see her, rather than at the bar. 
Gotta love the double standard that drunk on Amaretto Sours is classy, but drunk on bottom shelf vodka is trashy. But Adora, seemingly a bit tipsy, starts spewing one nasty line after another to Camille, lamenting how willful she was as a child and how she acted out just to hurt her mother, as if punishing Adora for being born. In Adora's words, quote, I thought you'd save me. I thought you'd love me. You made me feel like a child. Then, for the final kicker, she tells Camille that she smells ripe, referencing Camille's sexual history. These words wound Camille deeply, breaking her down into tears, which we haven't really seen her do much up until now, meaning Adora knows exactly how to get under her skin. She knows which words will hurt Camille the most, and it's an indication of how Camille has been treated her whole life. Again, because she never turned off the wild child act at the right time, like Emma has learned how to do, I imagine Thanksgiving dinner is absolutely a wonderful occasion for this family. But before I drop that twist I mentioned earlier, let's get into some more hidden words. First, the words worm, freak, and suck, written on a table in the brief flashback of Camille's. During the crime scene revelations with Richard and Camille, we see the following words throughout, barren and teeth. Now the last two words have a pretty obvious meaning, since they both relate to the murders and the things that happen at the shed and the end zone as previously discussed. As for the first three, they seem to hint at part of Camille's subconscious thoughts, possibly words she could use to describe her own actions or behavior. I do recall that she saw a worm on a log in the end zone, so it probably references memories from that time in her life. But that's all I got for these ones, guys. If you found any other hidden words or messages or have your own thoughts of what they could mean, feel free to leave a comment in the description of for this episode. In the end of episode 4, Camille heads back to the bar, driven there because of her mom's words, which, yeah, the irony's lot lost on me either, where she sees John Keane again, who again is the older brother of the second murdered girl, Natalie. Here, the two sit at the bar and bond a little over their shared trauma, that is, of losing a sister which in any other world other than sharp objects might lead to a hopeful resolution for both of them. But during this conversation, John opens up a bit more to her, and we learn three very important things about the two murdered girls. The first thing we learn is that Anne and Natalie were best friends. Peas in a pod, John says. They seemed to understand each other and were always hanging out together. However, they could also get at each other's throats a lot, apparently, even getting into fights. The second thing is that there was someone, a third person in that friend group who helped the girls get along. A third person who would separate Anne and Natalie when they got into fights, or as John mockingly puts it, was the only reason they did end up killing each other. And that person is none other than Emma. And then we learn fact number three. The three girls would go to the hunting shed in the woods to hang out. The same creepy hunting shed we saw earlier. Camille bolts out of the bar in terror. She is already imagining that the killer will come after Emma next. And the last few moments of the episode, we see what seems to be representations of all Camille's worst fears imaginable in this moment, starkly contrasting Camille's fears with reality. We see images of Emma lying dead in the shed and all her teeth are pulled out. But at the same time, we also see images from the actual present of Emma cruising around town with her friends. Episode 5 is titled Closer, 
and mainly focuses on a wind gap holiday called Calhoun Day. It's basically like a mini 4th of July for this little town. There's drinks and food and games and a play about a Civil War era event. The first thing I'll say about this is that the presence of Calhoun Day is by far the biggest difference between the book and the HBO series, as this holiday is nowhere in the book at all. The other changes are kind of small and mostly thanks to the show offering other scenes where Camille's not present since the book is written from her perspective. But for episode 5, we get an entire 50 minutes dedicated to something that wasn't in the novel in the first place. Which begs the question, why did the writers for this show include Calhoun Day? I'll circle back to that in a few moments. Now one thing that one can't help but notice is that this event is a lot about Southern pride and we see a lot of Confederate flags. Not just that, but in the play I mentioned, the Union is demonized while the Confederates are seen as heroes. These people are proud of their ancestors being on the southern side of history, because although Missouri was listed as being in the Union during the Civil War, it still had slavery, and it became a split state that was fought over with bloody results. Once again, as both Jillian Flynn and the writers of the show tend to do, the topic of racism, specifically as it pertains to Wind Gap, hardly gets more than a mention here. The only one who even uses the word racism in this episode is Richard, the detective from KC. And one cannot help but notice that, at least from what I saw, literally everyone who attends Calhoun Day is white. You'd think that with over 10% of the population of Missouri being black or African American, we would have at least a token POC by now, but I guess that's not what this story is about. Then again, I don't imagine the black population of Wind Gap, if there's any, would be welcome to or interested in coming to an event like this, and who can blame them. And by now, the fact that we have no POC supporting cast and only have a couple of them appearing briefly with little to no dialogue, the whole Calhoun Day party just brings home all the, well, mayonnaise. But how much of this whole episode is a commentary on the dark underbelly of Wind Gap's racist history rather than a result of American racism? I can't fully answer that question, but I would like to circle back as to why Calhoun Day was introduced in the show. The idea of Calhoun Day started as a joke, says Marty Noxon, the creator of Sharp Objects. In an interview with The Wrap, she explains, quote, There's a lot of talk about myth and fantasy and how that can influence towns and your story versus your truth. That idea bleeds into Camille's own mythos. The family has myths. The family has things that aren't necessarily true on the surface. The more we talked about the fake news of the town, the things that they told each other that just weren't true, the more we kept focusing on the founder's story. And the joke was that we were going to do Calhoun Day, the musical. But then we just started to realize there is something in bringing everybody in the town together. Like, it's this life of wind gap, and the dynamics of the haves and the have-nots. And Adora and the Preaker family as the kind of royalty of that family who controls the narrative being very juicy. And so eventually, it was like, we're doing Calhoun Day, we're doing it. Unquote. So basically, here we have a whole episode dedicated to exploring more of the culture of Wind Gap, the way that's all nice and pretty on the surface, but take just a little peek underneath and things get ugly. On a side note, 
This episode has a lot of images and references that I think anyone from a small town culture will appreciate. I'm from much farther up north in the country, but a lot of stuff in this episode brought me back to a special few-day event called Glen Flora Days in a tiny town I lived in for 10 years in rural Wisconsin. As in, two churches and one gas station small. But it was a great few days. We had a hog wallow, ice cream eating contest, music going late into the night, and other stuff I can't really recall at the moment. I would have loved it were it not just a tiny field away from our house, so I was forced to listen to the rock and country music blasting until 3am, even with my window shut, which was out of the question because my room had no air conditioner. But all this to say, episode 5 might give you major cravings for pulled pork and cold beer, and I had to eat a particularly depressing Caesar salad while working on this podcast, so I'm still thinking about it even now. Anyway, total tangent there, let's move on before I get too hungry. The episode kicks off the morning after Camille went looking for Emma, who in a few brief flashbacks, we see that Camille eventually found her roller skating around the streets of Wind Gap after dark, perfectly safe and sound. In this scene, we have a handful of hidden words on a moving train in the background. First is Southern, then Wretched, Trash, Nasty, and finally Bitch, Cry, and Nag. So Emma is not in danger for now, but who knows? We do have a big day coming up after all, where lots of tensed up and traumatized folks will be drinking in close proximity. Really, anything could happen. It's also not a coincidence that Camille published her latest news article about the killings on Calhoun Day. And while everyone at Adora's house is making preparations for the festivities, Emma reveals that her peers are sharing the article like crazy. On the downside, everyone has their own opinion on it. We hear the word bitch muttered under their breasts quite a bit in this episode. Whether it's about Camille not sharing the article with Emma first, or not putting in information someone gave to her. But, on the bright side, it's gained a lot of hits outside of Wind Gap as well, according to Frank, who calls Camille on Calhoun Day. This episode also has some significant moments between Adora, Camille, and Emma. Adora sees Camille wearing her typical casual alt-grunge black lawn sleeves and jeans, and decides this is not remotely appropriate for Calhoun Day. So, the three girls take a fun little field trip to a local boutique to find her something to wear. But of course, as we know, this field trip is not going to be remotely fun, or for anyone for that matter. In the book, this trip happens, but it does not correlate to Calhoun Day, of course, as we'll see in a moment. The writers of the show must have understood this scene was critical enough to find a way in regardless. Camille goes into the dress room at the boutique, and someone, it appears to be her mother, takes her clothes off the door, so she has to put on the dresses picked out for her. And it's so much worse, because Adora knows that her daughter has self-harming scars she wants to keep covered. So, she's literally trying to force Camille to expose them for everyone to see. Camille doesn't want to, and a yelling match ensues in which she demands Emma goes out to the car. Finally, Camille gives her mother exactly what she wants and opens the door. Since she is wearing only a bra and undies, all her self-harming scars, the dozens of words she has written on herself, are out in the open for Emma to look at in horror. This is where we see a bunch of other hidden words, or I suppose not so hidden anymore. 
Some of the words Camille has written on herself include girl, teeth, fuck you, blade, please, after, Ron, rip, and proper. Even though Camille insists she has stopped cutting, it's not good enough for Adora. In words that never become easier to hear with each rewatch of the series, Adora describes Camille as spiteful and that she's glad Emma saw it. In the book version of the scene, Adora's words are even more cutting. Quote, I hope you just loved it. I hope you can stand yourself. Unquote. Kind of ironic, isn't it? That this woman has caused Camille so much pain and as many reasons she cuts in the first place. Yet Adora doesn't even begin to understand why Camille cuts or how she is partly, if not mostly, to blame. To add to the irony, just a minute earlier, Adora's cut from the thorn bush began bleeding again, and she spits to her daughters that they made that happen. I just... The double standard is incredible. Absolutely incredible. But it's fine, because today is Calhoun Day. Everyone is having a good time. Maybe even too much fun? We hear the word 288 on the police chief's radio, which I looked up and apparently it's the word for lewd conduct. And the celebrations have only just started too. Oh, and by the way, Calhoun Day is hosted on the massive front lawn of Adore's home. So while all this is happening, we also gaze up at the lovely green mansion. But let's get back into what exactly Calhoun Day celebrates. Richard, who is of course the outsider as always, has to ask Camille what exactly this holiday is about, so she tells him. Calhoun Day honors the tale of a woman from Wingap named Millie Calhoun, who refused to portray her Confederate soldier's husband's whereabouts to Union soldiers. As Camille describes it, quote, It's how she resists that people in this town just love. The Union soldiers tied her to a tree, did horrible things to her, violations, but Millie never said a word, lost the baby. Unquote. And they have a play done by teenagers reenacting this event as watered down as it can possibly be while also making it very clear what is happening. Let me put it another way. This is a holiday about a woman who was gang raped and the celebration is in her strong, stoic refusal to betray her husband. An extra fun little tidbit is that Adora, and of course her daughters, are direct descendants from Millie Calhoun. So there's also something to be said about how ideals and trauma have been inherited generation after generation. So it seems that sexual violence, specifically against women, goes far back, way beyond the end zone, in that awful hunting shed. It is part of a story of the origins of the town, and that story is used as part of celebration to present day. The poison runs deep in Wingap's veins, and in the branches of Camille's family tree. And we see both the irony here, as well as how it connects to other themes going on in the story. For starters, the only reason they are celebrating Calhoun Day at all is because Millie Calhoun remains stoic, even after all she endured. So it's her calm resilience to being assaulted that Wingap honors, in the end. Contrast that with how Camille's mother berates her because of how she is coping with her own sexual trauma, specifically the cutting and drinking. It seems that Wingap is way more interested in their women just lying back and taking the abuse without protest, and how dare they express that they are suffering in any way. I think this mostly points to the backwards, very aged thinking Wingap has on women and their role in society, 
but it's there just also the fact that this town enjoys and benefits from suffering. I mean, they literally have a holiday about a woman being assaulted by soldiers. Just like how we saw at the Fawhog Farm, there are people who not only refuse to care about it, but relish in it. During the play, in which the kids portray Millie's assault due to the reenactment, adult men in the crowd are staring and giggling at the scene. These are the same men who hit on Camille earlier, and it's pretty safe to assume they were probably in the high school football team during the end zone days. Also, Emma herself plays Millie in the play. Women's suffering is either caused, ignored, or exploited by Wingap, or, in some cases, a little of all of the above. Another hidden word, I think, sums up a lot of what's happening on this particular local holiday. On a huge banner, the words Calhoun Day briefly read Shallow Day. Of course, we know this. The happiness, festivities, and good times of this holiday are all hiding a horrific darkness just underneath. In fact, in the previous episode, the police chief mentioned to Adora that maybe they should not have the holiday this year, but she insisted. It seems they hope Calhoun Day will be a break from the stress and grief of the killings, when in reality, it's only going to be a petty distraction for just a few hours. And even then, people still gossip about the killings and who they think did it, which, as it seems, more and more people are pointing to John Keane as a suspect, who makes an appearance at Calhoun Day. The fight interrupts the play, and Emma appears so distraught by this that she bolts off and disappears. And of course, this is met with just a little bit of concern due to the fact that there's a killer of little girls still on the loose. Fortunately, Camille finds Emma, who is hiding in the hunting shack crying, and all is well in the end. Happy Calhoun Day. However, the reason I bring up the sequence is because we get another glimpse of the woman in white. Or, is it the girl in white? As Camille runs into the woods to help find Emma, she sees a girl or a young woman in a white gown, who disappears as she walks behind a tree. Is it her dead sister Marion, or perhaps Alice, or is it someone else? I have a hard time telling at this point, but I do have to wonder, does it matter which of the dead little girls it is? Either way, Camille follows the girl or woman in white, and this vision leads her right to Emma's hiding place. It does call up her previous idea in the last episode, if this is merely a projection of Camille's trauma and inner thoughts on the show's visual platform, or if this is actual paranormal activity we're seeing. I think there's enough evidence for either, so it's up to the audience and what you think is being told here. So, with the episode's title in mind, it makes one wonder if we are getting closer to solving the case of the murdered girls, or perhaps Camille's closer to finally finding healing from her horrible family, or are we getting closer to something far more sinister that lurks just beneath the surface? Unfortunately, we're going to have to wait for part three to find out. And with that, we are five episodes into Sharp Objects, and we only have three to go. I'm so excited to talk about the rest of the show with you and share my thoughts on the series as a whole once we get to the end, and I hope you've been enjoying listening to this. If you are in the $6 tier or above, you can send me a movie or TV show recommendation to review in a future episode. If you are in the $25 tier or above, you can do the same for a book of your choice. And of course, make sure to check the full list of rewards for your tier so you can get all the goodies out of it. As always, thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll see you in a couple weeks for part 3 of 3 
of my review for HBO's Sharp Objects.